This is Jim Hughes again with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with members of the U.S. intelligence community. Today, I have a remarkable um, interviewee and a remarkable story. His name is Ron Estes. He's a friend and former colleague. We first met in Beirut, Lebanon in the early 70s when we both played on the same U.S. embassy softball team. And he was always the best player on the field, I might say. Ron is um, a former semi-pro um, baseball player. He's a U.S. Marine who served in Korea. He's a CIA DO ops officer, chief of operations, deputy chief of station, chief of station. Uh, toward the end of his career, he was deputy chief of our European division and chief of our FR division. But most important for today's conversation, in 1975, Ron was the DCOS in Athens, Greece, and was directly involved in helping us pull things together after the uh, alarming assassination of Dick Welch, the COS. Ron, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you for having me. Ron, I think our audience would like to know a little bit about your own background. You know, where'd you grow up, you know, playing baseball, serving in the Marine Corps, uh, maybe some of your early uh, days in the agency. Tell us a little bit about your background, please. I was born in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, my grandfather, who was a lawyer, <clears throat> built a home on five acres in Arlington in 1906. So I grew up in a five-acre family compound, my grandparents' home, my uncle's home and our home. It was an idyllic childhood. Tell us about serving in Korea and the Marine Corps, and uh, how did you join the agency? Well, <clears throat> I graduated from high school. I had pitched baseball for the high school baseball team, and we had won the state Virginia State Championship. When I graduated, I pitched two years of semi-pro baseball. One game was against the Quantico Marines. The cleanup batter for the Marines was Clyde Scott, an all-American linebacker for Navy. The first time he was up, I got two strikes on him, threw him uh, outside off-speed breaking pitch, and he struck out. The second time he got up, I had two men on base. I got two strikes. I knew just what I was going to throw him, and so did he. I threw the same pitch. It looked like a ping-pong ball when it went over the fence. So thus ended the baseball career. I was hired by a bank because the president of the bank was a friend of my family, and I was sent sponsored by the bank at the American Institute of Banking for one academic year. At the end of that year, the Korean War started. I knew I was to be drafted, <clears throat> so I did not return to school. I joined the Marines. I served three years in the Marines. Eleven months were in Korea with the 1st Marine Division in an infantry company. I was slightly wounded there, but not seriously. And I was sent home, ended my time in Korea in July 53, when the armistice was signed in Korea. 
After that, I was discharged. I enrolled at Virginia Tech to major in sociology because I wanted to be a juvenile delinquency officer. When I enrolled, I was given a battery of aptitude tests, and on the mechanical aptitude test, I scored six out of a possible hundred. It was a school record. The dean of admissions called me in and was very polite and asked, after a long silence, do you intend to be an engineer? I said no, and I think if I had said yes, he would have sent me home. In the fall of my senior year, I was asked to report to the admin building, and there in an interview room was a CIA recruiter. He asked if I spoke Russian. I said, no. Do you speak Chinese? No. Do you have a graduate degree? You know you just called me out of an undergraduate class. And he said, I have no idea why we have any interest in you. And I said, I didn't ask for this interview. I got up and walked out. We didn't shake hands. In January, CIA called me and said, come to Washington for a week of testing and evaluation. I did. In May, they called me and said, you graduate June the 9th, report for duty with us on the 12th. I did, and I found out that when OSS was dissolved at the end of World War II, many of their officers returned to academia. And CIA used them as spotters on the faculties. And someone at Virginia Tech had recommended they talk to me. I never found out who that was. After a year of training in a JOT program, I was assigned to Kavala, Greece. That was 1959. That's a great story. Ron, tell us a little bit about Dick Welch's background. Where did he grow up? How did he join the agency? Dick Welsh was born in 1929, and he grew up in Connecticut. He attended prep school, where he studied the classics, Latin and classical Greek. Dick remembered being driven to prep school by a chauffeur-driven car. In 1938, his father lost everything, and his father joined the army. Dick continued and went, enrolled in Harvard, and Harvard Dick majored in the classics, Latin and classical Greek. His father went on to be a regimental commander of artillery in Korea. His father retired from the army as the Pentagon spokesman. Dick graduated from Harvard in 1951. The Harvard class 5% of the Harvard class of 1951 was recruited into CIA, and Dick was in that class. After a year or so, he was assigned to Athens, Greece in 1952. I should say that when Dick was 10 years old, he stuck an ice pick in his left eye, and he had no sight in that eye. But one could not tell by looking at him 
But at the eye examination for his entrance physical into CIA, they covered his bad eye, and with his good eye, the eye examination was a classical Greek expression, which Greek Dick knew. They covered his good eye, and with a bad eye covered, he repeated the same classical Greek expression. He memorized it. When the doctor then took a flashlight and shined it in his eyes, he was shocked that Dick just read a passage and he had no sight in the eye. But he passed the examination and became a CIA operations officer. Ron, how did you and um, Dick meet? And did you all serve together more than once? <clears throat> Dick served in Greece from 1952 to 1959. Well, actually, 1960, <clears throat> and he was assigned to Cyprus. I was assigned to Greece, Kavala, Greece, in 1959. In 1962, I was also assigned to Cyprus. <clears throat> Dick and I were the two Greek-speaking officers in the Cyprus station, and we served there together until 1964 when we were both transferred out. I was transferred to headquarters to attend the Foreign Service Institute and to study the Czech language for assignment to Prague. Dick and I didn't meet again until 1975 in Athens. But in Cyprus, he and I played chess together at each other's homes every Sunday. We became fast friends. I went in his office one morning, and he was speaking in Greek, assigning and registering us in this Cypriot national chess tournament. When he hung up, I asked, Dick, what in the world are you doing? He said, look, think of all the people we will meet. We will meet the aristocracy of Cyprus at the national chess tournament. And we appeared. One does not talk at a chess term. You sit opposite the opponent, and you move and hit a metronome, and he moves, hits a metronome. You don't say a word. We met no one, not a soul. But I made it into the second round of the tournament because my first round opponent didn't show up. But Dick and I, at that time, decided someday we would take over Athens Station. And after a tour in Beirut in 73, I was assigned back to Greece as a deputy chief of station. The chief of station, Stacy Hulls, was to be transferred in 74. And I wrote Dick, who was chief of station, Peru, apply for the Athens job. He did. And he, he was assigned to Athens in 75 as the chief of station. He and I had taken over the Greek station, as we vowed 11 years earlier. And we celebrated. For weeks and weeks, we celebrated. We saw each other socially, say, five times a week. The station had a 33-foot Greek fishing boat made into a pleasure craft. We sailed most weekends with our wives. We had a wonderful time until December 1975. Ron, take us back to 1975 and tell our audience a little bit about 
What was the operational environment um, in Greece like at that time? We had had close relations with the Greek government since the Truman Doctrine, the Revolution, the Civil War. But in 1967, the Greek army overthrew the government, and as the junta became the state government, the junta leader was its head of state. At that time, the junta, after one year, the head of the junta was overthrown by another colonel in the junta, a man named Demetrios Ioannidis, who had been the commander of the military police. Ioannidis was now the head of state. There was, and I had liaison with the Greek raiding forces because CIA had created the Greek raiding forces, armed them, trained them, and I went to the Pentagon to meet with them on a regular basis. At one of those meetings, Ioannidis came and sat down opposite a coffee table, and we were served coffee and water. And I asked Ioann, I had met him before, I asked Ioannidis, rumor that you planned to overthrow Makadios in Cyprus because the Greek government wanted Anosis union between Cyprus and Greece. Is it true that you intend to overthrow him? And Ioannidis said, I don't I have made up my mind yet. I don't know what the Russians are going to do. And I said, why worry about the Russians? How about the United States? He said, well, you are our allies. You will approve anything I do. And I said, what about the Turks, if the Turks become involved? He said, if the Turks become involved, I will be in Istanbul in three days. I said, you will be in Istanbul in three days as a prisoner of war. He jumped up, kicked the coffee table over, spilled coffee and water, and stormed out. At that time, the Greek Cypriot community militia had regular, mainly Greek army officers. And sure enough, in 1974, July, Ioannidis overthrew Makarios. Five days later, Turkey invaded because in the Zurich Agreement between Britain, Turkey, and Greece, Greece, by overthrowing Makarios, violated the agreement. Turkey had a legal right to invade Cyprus. And when they invaded Cyprus, the junta fell, and Ioannidis was sentenced to life in prison, where he died. Ron, was there any indication something was going on in advance of Dick Welsh's murder? Were you getting any indications of possible operations that might be targeted against the uh, the station or against uh, Dick Welsh? No, what I should have added when the junta, when the Turks invaded, Ioannidis told the Greek people on television and the press that the United States was partially responsible for the Turkish invasion because as a member of NATO, the United States could have stopped the Turkish invasion. Ioannidis also said, the United States encouraged me to overthrow Makarios, and when I did, they pulled the rug out from under me. The entire population of Greece overnight became hostile to the United States. They burned 71 American cars, attacked the embassy, and sacked the first floor of the embassy, and killed Dick Welsh because 
of the Yoannidis' claim of American responsibility for the Turkish invasion. Ron, where were you that dark night when you learned of Dick Welsh's murder? I was at the home of a lady named Luba, my fiance. We were not married. And I was, we had had dinner, and Dick and his wife had been to the American ambassador's residence for a reception. And when he arrived back, it was at almost nine o'clock. And as his chauffeur was putting open the iron gates to the garage, and Dick and his wife got out of the car to walk to the entrance of the house, a car pulled up behind with three men. One man on the left, the driver's side, one man in the middle, one man on the right. And as Dick got out of the car, the man said, put your hands up. And he shot Dick three times. The first shot disrupted his aorta. The second shot went through his coat. The third shot hit him in the derriere in the rear as he was falling. The driver got in the car and came to where I was having dinner with my fiance. I was sitting on the couch while she was cleaning the table. He burst in the front door and told me in Greek, there's been a shooting, Mr. Welsh is down. So I grabbed a blazer and went out the door. My wife, my intent, my future wife, asked the driver who didn't speak English, what's going on? And he said in English, Mr. Welsh, shoot. Shoot. She screamed at me, don't go, but we, the driver and I went, it was two blocks. I arrived at the, in front of the house. Dick was lying on the sidewalk on his back. The steam from his face, his face was a bloody mask. Steam was arising from his face in a steady stream. I knew he was dead. I'd seen enough dead bodies in Korea. I knew he was dead. His wife was kneeling beside him on the sidewalk. A police car arrived with one policeman. <clears throat> I asked the policeman to call an ambulance. Five minutes later, I still heard no sirens. I asked the policeman, did you call the ambulance? He said, yes. I said, where is he? He said, I don't know. I asked him to get out of the car and help Dick's driver and me put Dick in the back seat of his car. I put his wife in the police car. Because if I were wrong about him dying, I didn't want him dying in the car with her at present. So the policeman led us to the hospital where an emergency put him on a gurney, took him to an examining room. <clears throat> the doctor put a stethoscope on his chest and told me, hi, after he's gone. I walked out to the lobby and there were many journalists. The Greek journalists apparently followed the correspondence the communications of the police. So they knew there had been a shooting of an American diplomat, and they were there. They asked me, they didn't know he'd been shot. They asked me, how was he killed? Automobile accident, I said, no, he'd been shot. They were shocked. They were just shocked. I didn't want to answer questions from the press. The embassy also heard, and they sent uh, USIA also to the hot lobby to relieve me, uh, to be the spokesman for the embassy. I called my intended wife and asked her to go to Dick Welsh's home because and be with his wife. Dick Welsh's father also lived with him. 
and I asked her to call a station officer and have him get all the officers in the, the office where I briefed them on what happened. I then, it was almost morning, I called Luba, my wife, and said, get Dick's father of Patrick, put him on a couch in the sunroom. I'm going to come tell him that his son is dead. I went there at 7 o'clock. Patrick was on the couch. I pulled a chair up close by and said, Patrick, we had a shooting last night. He asked, was Dick involved? I said, yes, he was. He said, is he dead? I said, yes, he is. He said, God damn it. I had two others who are expendable. And then he said, Ron, can you have him buried in Arlington Cemetery? Dick had never served in the military. I said, I shall find out. And then he said, will you have a drink with me? It was 7.30 in the morning. He called the valet. We had a double scotch. It was the most important drink I ever had. I needed that drink the way I needed double pneumonia because I had to give a deposition to the security police at nine. I didn't need a double scotch, but that's the way the night ended. Ron, what was the impact on the station officers and on station operations and on relations with the Greek government after, uh, after Dick's murder? I had them all in Dick Welch's office and I told them what happened. Two were in tears. A third went to an office two doors down where he kept weapons, and he came out with a pistol in his hand, and I asked, where are you going? He said, I'm going to kill the KGB resident, KGB chief of station. I asked, take the pistol away from him and stop him, and they had to wrestle the gun away from him. There were, that room was charged. They were all very, very emotional. It was a very difficult session. But and what were station operations like after that? Our station operations were not adversely affected, except our internal operations turned itself to who killed Dick Welsh. We learned it was 17 November organization, and the entire internal branch of the station were focusing now on sources who can tell us about 17 November. Because we had we had heard about them and paid no attention to them before. They had killed no one. Um, we did learn that that night there was a member of Aoka from Cyprus. Aoka was the Greek militia who fought the British for Cypriot independence. He already killed several men, and he was in Athens, and he had a forty-five pistol. That was what killed Dick. And that after that night, he boarded a plane and went back to Cyprus. I had recruited in Cyprus a member of a terrorist organization who had been a Aoka member also. That was 11 years ago. When I left Cyprus, he had already killed three men and shot the chief of police, Nicosia, but he was an agent of mine, and he was a friend. When I left Cyprus, he said, Ron, if CIA ever wants anything done they don't want to do, call me. I sent a station officer, his name is Doug Smith, to Cyprus 
to see that agent. His name was Petro. And ask him to go see the AOPA member who had been in Athens and ask him if he had killed Dick. So Doug went to the Casilla, went to the gun store, which Petro owned, and said, Ron sent me. And he went and closed the door, pulled him, and I said, what does he want? Dick told him. Doug told him, and he said, I know him. He went to see him. And he came back to see Doug. He said, I told him that I had liaison with CIA, and they are asking me if you killed the man in Athens. The recipient, Elka member, panicked. He wanted nothing to do with CIA. So he agreed to meet with Doug Smith, and the instructions were, take a road to Larnaca, turn off on a dirt road at a certain point, and stop where a tree blocked the road. Get out of the car, open all four doors, put your hands up, and look to the right, and you'll see a flashlight blink. Go to that flashlight, and I'll meet you there. Doug sent that to me in Athens in a cable, and I thought, I'm going to have another body on my hands. But Doug said, let me do it. And so I said, go. He talked to the man. The man swore he did not kill Dick. And Doug asked him if he'd be polygraphed. So Doug took him to back to Nicosia, where he sent a polygraph operator and polygraphed him in the back room of the gun shop. And he was innocent. So we didn't know where to start. We had no idea who. The Greek government maintained an official liaison relationship with us. We had a relationship with the Greek Cypriot, the Greek security police, and keep the Greek National Intelligence Service. And our relations continued, but they were cool. One evening, one afternoon, the deputy chief of the Greek Intelligence Service called me and asked to meet. We met in the, at the bar. I said, I'll come to your office. He said, no, I don't want you here. We met at the bar of the Hilton Hotel, and he had his wife. And he asked me what happened with our relationship with you. And I told him about my conversation with Ioannidis and what Ioannidis told him. Greek people. And the man wept. He wept and said, what have we done? So there was an element in the Greek services who were very sympathetic, and there was another element that were very hostile because of the Turkish invasion. It was a mixed reception. Ron, in addition to your um, conversation with Dick Welsh's uh, father uh, the day after his murder, did you have much contact with uh, other members of his family, his wife, his children? I had contact with his children because we had been friends in Cyprus. My children, his children. Dick's first wife and, and I and my wife. But Dick and I were both divorced by that time. He had a new wife. His children were not in Greece at the time. They were with his their mother. Dick's current wife was a Guatemalan. The children, as a matter of fact, we still, we had Dick's son here with us two weeks ago. Ron, tell us about the request from the son for Dick to be buried at Arlington and what you were able to accomplish in that regard. 
Well, when, as I said, when I told Dick's father asked me if I could have him buried in Arlington Cemetery, I said, I said, I'll find out. I sent a cable to headquarters. Colby, the director, went to see Jerry Ford, the president, who approved it immediately. So Dick Schumer was in Arlington Cemetery. He was buried there, and President Ford and Kissinger attended the funeral. I understand that uh, this was somewhat unprecedented because Dick had never served in the U.S. military. He had never served in the military. But he was the first CIA chief of station assassinated, and so it was really a rather unprecedented step to have him uh, buried with full honors in Arlington uh, Cemetery. That's very true. Very accurate, yes. Ron, I understand that um, Dick Walsh's father, Patrick, died some five months after uh, Dick was murdered, and he also is now um, buried at Arlington Cemetery. What can you tell our audience about that? I know that um, Patrick was ecstatic that Dick was buried in the cemetery and the president attended his funeral. But Patrick had a stroke five months later and died. And as a former army officer, he was also buried in Arlington Cemetery. But in not, I don't know how close, but it was a row or so from Dick's burial site. They were very close together the two burial sites, and his father would have been delighted. Many years passed before um, we ever found out who was responsible for Dick's murder. It was 17 November. Uh, The agency had a task force responsible for investigating his murder that worked diligently for many, many years. But it was only many years later that uh, the actual culprits were identified and apprehended. You were... uh, long retired by the time um, the final information came out. Uh, How did you find out about it? I had relations with Doug Smith and other officers from the station. And I uh, was a personal friend of the director of operations of the clandestine service. And he kept me informed. So I knew in great detail what we were doing in Athens. But it wasn't so long after 17 November killed Dick that we knew who killed him because 17 November sent a, a statement to the Liberation newspaper in Paris explaining why and how they killed Dick. So we knew the target. And then later on, they were responsible for a number of other um, assassinations of Americans and other violent acts. They killed a naval attaché. They killed an enlisted man from the Air Force. They killed, I don't know, 15 or 17 people. They killed two friends of mine in the security police. They were very deadly terrorist organization. But it took 20 years but we found them all, and they were all imprisoned. Ron, this has been a great story. I know somewhat difficult for you to tell, but I think something very, very important for our members and our audiences to hear. If you want more information, there is an excellent article that appeared uh, about 16 months ago in early uh, 2021 in The Intelligencer, written by Samantha Childress and Raleigh Flynn, and to which 
Ron made great contributions that captures a lot of the detail of the story. I want to thank uh, Ron Estes and his wife, Lubu, who was very helpful in setting this up for what has been a fascinating interview. Well, thank you very much. You're very kind. <clears throat> May I tell you about my wife? I was from Soviet operations in the Beirut station, and I wanted a Russian-speaking female to introduce to the circle of wives of the Soviet embassy. And we found Luba, who is Russian, white Russian, born in Manchuria. Her grandfather had been a chief justice of the Supreme Court of Manchuria for the Russian Tsar. And after the Bolshevik Revolution, the family could not return to Russia. So she was born in Manchuria and grew up in Shanghai and Hong Kong. And later, the family migrated to the States. I recruited her in Beirut, and we introduced her to the Circle of Wives, and she was highly successful. We learned a lot about our KGB targets. She, two of us met her once a week in a safe house. She teased us for years that she was really a KGB double agent and that her KGB handler was named Boris. And we would say in the safe house, Luba, we want you to do this, this, and this, this week. And she would say, oh, wait a Boris, here's that. Oh, Boris, I'm excited about that. So I was transferred back to Athens after three years. The next year, she came to Athens, evacuated from fighting in Lebanon. And because of her affiliation with us in Beirut, the CIA station in Athens hired her as a Russian linguist. And a year later, we were married. By this time, I was the chief of station because Dick had been assassinated. The ambassador, my name is in the paper, and so the ambassador asked that we marry in his residence, and we did. And as we turned from the altar, she spoke to her bouquet and said, Boris, mission accomplished. I'm still leery. She may still be a Russian agent, but we've polygraphed her so many times. I think she's probably innocent. But Ron, that's a great story. Thank Ron you. Ron and Luba have been married 46 years now. Yes, we have. And Luba had a very important job off camera in helping to set up today's interview. And she had a major role. And I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and tell this story. Thank you very much. Thank you.